So we are starting a new series this weekend, which is called One of the Twelve. And I'll be honest with you, I am really, really excited about this one. And I'm not just saying that to sell it. I really genuinely mean it. Um, Because we're going to be getting into some pretty in-depth, some pretty deep topics that I think are going to cause some of us to take a hard look at ourselves, figure out if we really are where we think we are. And that's a good wake-up call sometimes. And I think we're going to be able to jump into that over the next six weeks. And so come back, uh, enjoy this, get everything you can out of it. I really do think it's going to be an impactful one, okay? But before we get into the first message today, I wanted to, to start on a lighter side, maybe get the energy back a little bit, have a little bit of fun, um, some information here, and talk a little bit about the Easter of this holiday that we celebrate called Easter. Um, now, I typically don't like to get into something, jump into something if I'm ignorant on the subject, right? I kind of want to know what it's about, where did it start, how has it evolved? And so I was doing some research about Easter and some pretty interesting information came up. So the first recorded observance of Easter occurred in the second century, okay? So less than 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus is when this was started. Now, it began as a celebration of the resurrection, and so quickly it was adopted as a principal festival of Easter, okay, Um, and our Christian faith. So, over 600 years, we see some debate going back and forth uh, in Europe as to when Easter was to be celebrated, okay? There's a little bit of a disagreement. And what we saw is the Eastern European church always celebrated in line with the Jewish Passover, Now, that could happen any day of the week, okay? Every year that would change, it would roll over. Now, on the Western side of Europe, they would always celebrate on a Sunday because Jesus rose from the tomb on the first day of the week. And so they felt like that was appropriate. And so there was a little bit of dissension. Now, finally, after 600 years in the eighth century, we finally see a general agreement come into place. And they agreed Easter is to be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon that follows the spring equinox, okay? So that's when we celebrate this today. Now, even after that general agreement, there still over the years has been a little bit of dissension. And so there are still parts of Europe that actually celebrate this at different times. So there can be up to five weeks difference between when we celebrate here and when it's celebrated over in Europe. So if you happen to have friends or family over there, you might've actually experienced that. Now, when we get into some of the customs that we now enjoy around here, It's pretty interesting how these have have come about. For instance, Easter eggs, okay? This actually came about in the 13th century. So this is well after the holiday was already established. But what happened is the church would prohibit the eating of eggs during the Holy Week, which led up to Easter. And so what happened is over time, they began to dedicate these as holy eggs, And then they would paint them red, which symbolized the blood of Jesus. And so that's how that started. Now, then they realized, oh yeah, the hatching of the egg also symbolized Jesus coming from the tomb. And so therefore there's double symbolism. And so that's when it was accepted as a custom. Now, obviously over hundreds of years, it has evolved into what it is today, but that's where it started. Now, the Easter bunny 
which is one of the more obscure, random ones, I think we would agree, that did not come about till the 19th century. So not very long ago at all, this was started. And what's commonly accepted uh, as a theory is that the rabbit symbolizes fertility, which symbolizes new life, which is obviously something that we believe in in our Christian walk. And so therefore it became the symbol of Easter. But that is not universal at all. In fact, in many parts of Europe, the rabbit is not the symbol of Easter. So in Switzerland, uh, the symbol is the cuckoo bird. In parts of Germany, they uh, symbolize it with the fox. Um, In other countries, it's not even animals. Like in France, they use bells, which symbolize the church bells ringing. And then in other parts of Europe, the custom is young boys will get buckets full of water and they'll just go and pour it on people to symbolize baptism. So it sounds like fun, right? So all of these different customs that have come about over hundreds and hundreds of years, all celebrating Easter. And what's cool is all of this is going on right now, all across. Somebody's getting a bucket of water over the head right now, (laughs) celebrating Easter. It's pretty cool to think about all of these things that have come about. But the one common thread, the one unbreakable thread dating back to the second century is Jesus. It always has been. It always will be a celebration of Jesus. Now, we talk a lot about Jesus around here, right? We teach about him, we sing about him, we try our best to reflect him. But because we're so accustomed to the topic, I think so often we truly lose sight of his humanity. We forget that he was a real man. Like he literally lived in Israel. You can take a flight to northern Israel. You can walk the same hills that he walked as a child. You can take a boat on the same Sea of Galilee that he traveled throughout much of his ministry. In fact, people in the room have done this. He was a real man. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He became a construction worker. Like this was a real dude. We see historical evidence of this in our four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, It's there, his life, all about it, right? We see historical evidence from first century Jewish historians. We see it from first century Roman historians. Even Roman officials of the day have writings about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. There's very little debate on this subject. In fact, even first century Jews were perfectly fine acknowledging the life of Jesus. No problem. But see, the question is not, did Jesus exist? The question is, is he who he said he was? That's what this gets down to. This is the question I want you to ask yourself very seriously. It's not, do I believe Jesus was a man? It's, do I believe Jesus was the son of God in flesh? This is what we must discover. This is what we have to remedy before we take any further steps in our faith. And this is what brings us to the ultimate message and significance of Easter. Now, maybe you've wondered this before. Maybe you're sitting there wondering this right now. I know that I've often thought this throughout my life. What is Easter really about? Like when it really gets down to it, I want to know what I'm celebrating. I get that we're celebrating Jesus. That seems obvious. But when it gets to the core of things, what is this about? And it's very simply this. 
The Easter message, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was full evidence, it was full confirmation that he was who he said he was. That's what this is about. Now watch what it says in Romans 1.4. This is very interesting. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So catch this. His resurrection is what ultimately declared that he was the son of God. So Easter is a crying out. He is the Messiah, the lamb of God, the chosen one. It was confirmation the king is among us. Now, so often we're willing to get swept away as we think about his death. We think about the trials that he had to endure. We think about the beatings. We think about the crucifixion, which just turns our stomachs. We, we dwell on these things because they're heavy. You know, there's weight to them. As we begin to realize the full sacrifice that he made, we, we dwell on these things because we realize he did it on our behalf. But what we can never forget, what we can never forget is that the true power of the gospel is in the resurrection of Christ. See, if Jesus would have simply endured the horrific nature of the beatings and the crucifixion, but he stayed in the tomb, not only would we have no claim to victory over death, but we would have no claim to Jesus as Messiah. He couldn't possibly be who he said he was. He couldn't possibly be our savior. How could we believe in a savior that lies to us? On so many occasions throughout his life on earth, he foretells of his resurrection. He, he predicts it. He says, this is gonna come. In Matthew 12, he says, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples that he'll be raised up on the third day. In Matthew 17, he reiterates the same thing almost word for word. In John 2, Jesus tells the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. He made it abundantly clear what would happen if... Indeed, he was the son of God. See, catch this. If Jesus were still in the tomb today, what could we possibly say about these claims that he made? What could we possibly say? What could we use as evidence that he is the Messiah? All that we could say is he, he must have been a false prophet. He was a blasphemer. He was a, a liar, just like they claimed him to be. But instead, this is what we read in Luke 24, starting in verse one. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. See, so catch this. Above and beyond anything else, this was an exclamation that he was who he claimed to be. See, the evidence was in at this point. Jesus is the Messiah. And if he's the Messiah, 
If he died for our sins, if he rose from the grave, that means we can forever rest in the fact that we can follow in his footsteps. Watch how this works. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So catch that, because there's no greater news than this. There's no greater comfort than the resurrection of Christ. Like when we speak of the gospel, we talk a lot about the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And this is the core of it. This is so much the core and the foundation of the gospel that we see this preached over and over again in the first church, over and over again. Watch, when it was very first established by the disciples in Acts 4, watch what's said. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In the early Gentile church, once the message is spread beyond the Jews, watch what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that he was raised on the third day. It's the message the first converts heard. It's the message that the Gentile church received as of first importance. And it is the message we receive and we celebrate today. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose. That's why we celebrate Easter. Now, as I mentioned before, we are starting a brand new series today, which is called One of the Twelve. And I wanted to give you a little bit of an insight as to why we decided to start this today. We made that decision because we see some very interesting things that are occurring throughout the final hours of Jesus's life. And what we see is a really clear look into the ones who were closest to him. We get a really clear picture into who his 12 disciples truly were. And frankly, when it gets down to it, unfortunately, we also get to see how much we can relate to them. And I want you to keep that in your mind as we move forward. Now, just for quick reference, when we talk about the 12 disciples, we're simply talking about 12 men who were students of Jesus, okay? That's who they were. So when Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, he goes out, he chooses 12 people who are gonna be the witnesses to his greatness, right? But they're also gonna be training under his tutelage. And so according to scripture, these people were with Jesus throughout much of his ministry, okay? Throughout his teachings, throughout his miracles, throughout his travels, they are there. They're in the room with him. And this occurs for over three years. So in other words, these were people who had spent a great deal of time with Jesus. And as you read through the gospels, you see the effects of that. You see strong bonds that are forming between Jesus and these men. You see belief churning in their hearts as they see Jesus at work. You see him using these disciples to do miraculous things in the neighboring towns of Nazareth. So very clearly a special connection with these people. He calls them, he equips them, and then eventually he sends them out to do his work. And yet the people who are closest to him the people who you might argue love and trust him more than anyone. These are people he chose for himself. They don't act like you might expect throughout his final days. 
Their actions probably don't line up with what you might anticipate out of his closest friends. And so today I want to take a journey through the final hours of Jesus's life. And I want to start in Mark chapter 14. But before we get there, I want to just set the stage real quick for you, okay? Now, at this point in the narrative, Jesus has just finished his last supper with his disciples, okay? A very famous event that occurs in his final hours. And at this supper, he has seemingly prepared them for the events that are about to unfold, okay? Now, at this point, Jesus is literally hours away from enduring the worst pain and the worst betrayal that you could possibly imagine. I mean, the clock is ticking and he knows it. So he takes his disciples and they go somewhere so that he can pray. He understands what's coming. He knows that it is coming soon and he knows he needs to get ready. And so this is what we read in Mark 14, starting in verse 32. And I want you to just really picture what's going on throughout this. It says, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came back and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you might not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came back a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now, here's what stands out to me here, and I think you would agree. Not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus' closest friends let him down in his time of need. Now, I think we can agree. Jesus does the right thing. He, He takes the right steps. He goes to the Father in prayer. He gets his group of friends around him for support. In fact, we encourage everybody to do that here when they're in trouble, right? And yet still, his friends have nothing to offer him. Now, I want to fill in some of the blanks here so that you can really get the full picture of what's going on here. I want you to see this the way that I see this. And let's start off with this, okay? Let's begin here. It doesn't really seem like Jesus is asking all that much of them, right? Can we agree? Like, he's not asking a big, huge favor here. All he says is remain here and keep watch. That's not very much. Now remember, Jesus knows that people are literally on their way to come and capture him. They're coming, he knows it. All he's asking of his friends is to keep watch. Just keep cover for me, that's it. Now by this time in their lives, they have spent three years with this man. 
They have seen so many miraculous things that at the end of the book of John, he says there aren't enough books to contain it. I, I literally can't write it all down. They have seen more things than we could ever imagine. Now, we also know that at least Peter at this point has declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that has been predicted for thousands of years. He is here, which probably means the rest of them have a pretty good idea as well. So think about what they know of this man. Think about what their perspective should be as he is in their midst. Now, this account tells us that he comes to them distressed and troubled. Now, at face value, that might not seem like a big deal, right? Okay, whatever, he was distressed. But you have to keep in mind, this is the same guy who just years before this, as the waves of the Sea of Galilee are crashing down and the boat is about to capsize, the disciples are freaking out. They don't know what in the world to do. They are completely panicked. And while this chaos is going on, Jesus is asleep. They go and they wake him up, and with three words, he quiets the storm. Now, they had seen this man attacked at every turn by the religious elite of the day, and every time he handles it with calm and with ease. And now, all of a sudden, this same guy is distressed. He's in anguish. Like, wouldn't you think that the disciples would take notice of this? Like, admittedly, I'm not the most observant person in the world. My wife can tell you, I'm not. I, I agree with that. But I, I think I would have noticed something's different about my friend. He's not acting normal. But then not only do they see him in anguish, not only should they realize something is up here, but you also have to know just hours before this, he straight up tells them, I'm about to be betrayed. You guys, you're gonna scatter like sheep. You're gonna run for your lives. Now, Peter, to no surprise, steps up and says, not me, ain't gonna happen to me, not gonna do it. To which Jesus responds, not only will you scatter, you're gonna deny me three times. That's what he says. So let's just do a quick reset here to make sure we're on the same page, okay? So they're at the Last Supper. He tells these men, I'm about to be betrayed. You guys are gonna scatter like sheep running for your lives, we fast forward a few hours. Suddenly, Jesus is now in anguish and he's distressed. Now, I would think the disciples at this point would be on high alert. Jesus has warned us. He's acting a little funny. Something's going on here. We need to be ready. And yet what we just read is that they can't even stay awake to keep watch. They are out. And sure enough, by the time he warns them on three different occasions, the soldiers arrive He's arrested and he's taken into the city to be put on trial. Now, over the next three and a half days, as Jesus is put through the worst betrayal in the history of mankind, I want that to just soak in for a second. As I mentioned, the ones closest to him don't exactly act like you might expect. In fact, it's almost alarming what we see. After Jesus is arrested, the next event that we see is he's taken into the city and he's put on trial. Now, he's put on trial six different times, okay? The only account of any disciples who were present for any of those was when Peter fulfilled Jesus' prophecy and denied him three times. That's it. 
As the whole world is chastising him, they're screaming obscenities in his face throughout six different trials. There's not a disciple in sight. There's no one to stick up for him, no one to have his back, no one to support him. They are gone. Now, after the six trials are complete, and for the record, there's found to be zero evidence of wrongdoing on the part of Jesus, the crowd is still in an uproar. I mean, they still want to rise up against this guy. They want blood. And so finally, we see the worst verdict of all time passed down, which is that Jesus is to be crucified. So they immediately take him to the palace. They dress him up in purple. They put a crown of thorns onto his head and they beat him to a pulp in the palace. They mock him incessantly. King of the Jews, laughing in his face. And not a single time could he peek over to one of the 12 for just a little bit of support. Not a single time could he look one of them in the eyes and muster up a bit more strength. They were nowhere to be found, gone. Now, once they had torn his body apart and he had already endured more pain than you could ever imagine, he's now responsible for carrying his cross from the palace to Golgotha. Now, despite the many depictions that you may have seen of this event, prisoners uh, in that era were not responsible for carrying the full cross. They were just responsible for the horizontal piece, that one wooden beam. But even that chunk of wood could weigh upwards of 150 pounds. And so somebody in Jesus's condition, who's literally been torn apart at this point, ripped to shreds, just simply, he, he can't carry it. It's just not feasible for him. And so scripture records that they had to call somebody from the roadside to come and help him carry his cross. They had to call in some assistance. Now, surely this is when one of the disciples shows up, right? The disciple runs from the roadside, comes and picks up the cross for Jesus. I got you. I'm right here for you. And instead, a random man from North Africa is the one who comes and helps carry our Savior's cross. So slowly but surely, they make their way to the hill. And when they arrive, they stretch his beaten body across the wooden beams. Nails were driven into his wrist and into his feet. And as they raised the cross, this is where he would hang for hours. For hours, he would hang here. Now, they say that in these historic crucifixions, it was basically just a long, torturous, horrific way of suffocating someone. That's what it was about. So what they would do is they would nail the feet to the cross. They would leave a little bit of room for the knees to flex so that when they're hanging there, there's so much pressure on the lungs and the median nerves in your wrist that you can breathe air in, but you can't breathe it out. So the only way to exhale is to push up on the nails in your feet, get a little extension so you can take a breath. So you're either suffocating to death or you're putting the full weight of your body on the nails in your feet. So for hours, Jesus is writhing up and down the cross, just trying to breathe, trying to get any sort of 
relief, the lacerations in his feet are growing wider. The oxygen is fading from his lungs. And as he's going through this unimaginable experience of pain, an unimaginable experience of betrayal. I mean, think about the emotional weight of what is going on here. Throughout this, the only recorded possibility of a disciple on the scene that day was John. No others were there for their friend, let alone the one that they once called Messiah. Not a single time could he look down and see a familiar face of one of his disciples. And so finally, after hours of unbearable pain, of diminishing oxygen, Jesus finally reaches the end and he declares, it is finished. The greatest sacrifice in the history of mankind, the sacrifice on your behalf was complete. Now what we see next as evening begins to approach that night, we finally get a little bit of a breakthrough here. We finally see somebody get the courage to step up on Jesus's behalf. This gentleman goes to Pilate and despite the consequences, he says, I wanna take the body of Jesus. I wanna make sure that his body is properly buried. Now, much to his surprise, Pilate agrees to this. So he takes the body, he makes sure that a tomb is prepared, he wraps it in linen, and he places it safely in the tomb. We should be forever grateful for the man that took care of our Savior's body that day. But not only was he not one of the 12, but the only people who were even there to watch where the body was laid to rest were Mary Magdalene and the mother of Jesus. Not only did his friends not take care of his dead body, but they didn't even make it a point to see where it was laid to rest. So he's properly covered. He's placed safely into the tomb. The stone is sealed and three days begin to roll by. Now this is where things get even more interesting to me, okay? This is where things kind of kick up a notch because I could have swore that I read like four scriptures earlier where he made his disciples perfectly aware of the fact that on the third day he was going to be raised to life. I could have swore I read, did I read that? Let's make sure I read it. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay. Perfectly clear. I get what's going on here. So the disciples surely that morning are gathered around the tomb in celebration, waiting for the resurrection of their friend. They're ready. And instead, this is what we read in John 20, 19. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, I'm sorry to belabor the point here, but at every stop, at every point of Jesus's trial and his death, the ones who were supposedly closest to him failed him. Throughout his toughest hour, when the whole world is against him, these guys are coddled up in fear of what might happen to them. They're afraid. They're weak cowards. Now, why? Why in the world would Jesus choose these men? 
Why in the world would he choose these guys to be his closest followers? In fact, now that I think about it, I'm a little confused because aren't these the same guys that less than 60 days later would be the founders and leaders of the first church? In fact, weren't they applauded for their courage and boldness in how they preached the gospel? In fact, history shows that every one of them, with one exception, would go on to die horrible, sacrificial deaths on behalf of their beliefs. Matthew was stabbed to death. James was stoned. Andrew was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down, all for the sake of Christ. And so I'm left a little bit confused because these people are huddled up in the house with the doors closed in fear for their lives as Jesus is being beaten, he's being crucified, and he's being placed in the tomb. And yet these are the same guys that go on to die for the very same cause. Can I ask you what changed? What, what happened? How did they go through such a radical transformation? Because the story wasn't over. John 20, 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, watch what it says next. Jesus came and he stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. This is what changed everything for the disciples, from being weak to being strong, from living in fear to living with boldness, from being cowards to being martyrs. What changed it all was the resurrection. See, had Jesus simply died and stayed in the tomb, catch this, there would not have been a revival through the streets of Jerusalem months later. There would not have been a church that was soon after established. The chosen leaders would still be in the house with the doors locked. But once the resurrection occurred, everything changed. Grave was defeated, power over darkness, boldness beyond measure. There could no longer be any doubt. Jesus, the man, is the Messiah. Amen. This is why we celebrate today because he changed everything. And the coolest part about all of this is that the transformation that occurs was first and foremost seen in his disciples. It was first and foremost seen in the people who were closest to him. I had some background music for that one. Isn't that cool? The ones who are closest to him are the ones that experience the change first. Afraid for their lives, preachers of the gospel. And it changed because of the resurrection. But this miraculous change, this amazing transformation that we see did not occur in all 12 of them. See, one of them didn't just deny him three times. One of them didn't just hide in fear of the Jews. See, one of them outright betrayed him. And the story ends much, much differently for him. See, the one who was responsible for placing Jesus into the hands of his captors, the one who was single-handedly responsible for betraying our Lord and Savior, he was not just an acquaintance. He was not on the fringes one day as Jesus walked by. He was someone who was closest to him. 
We started our journey today as the Lord's Supper was coming to a close and they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane so Jesus could pray. And I want to backtrack just a few minutes to show you a conversation that occurs throughout that Last Supper. Mark 14, 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12. Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him. We invite you over the next five weeks as we do a study of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed our Lord and Savior, and he was one of the 12. 